So uh, the New Testament doesn't talk much about how it happened. It was a settled matter by the time the New Testament was written. Consider two generations. There was the generation that witnessed Yeshua alive, and they also saw him appear from heaven. We're going to talk about his appearances from heaven this morning. And then there was the generation 50 years later to whom the New Testament documents were written. I want you to think about 50 years ago. It was a while. I know, because I'm 47. So, 1964. Now, granted, in the ancient world, things probably didn't change as quickly as they do. I mean, think about computers and all the things that have changed in the world since 1964. Life didn't move at the same pace back then as it does now, but still, 50 years is a long time. Just think about your family. Think about who was alive 50 years ago in your family. How are things different? 50 years is no small amount of time. And the distance between Yeshua's life and the writing of the New Testament documents is about 50 years. Now, why did the early believers not have written Gospels? I think some people think that wherever Yeshua went, there were people taking transcription of everything he said, you know? Or maybe they knew shorthand and they were writing on little wax tablets in shorthand to make sure they got every word of what he said. Uh, But it wasn't that way. And um, I want to give you a parallel case, the case of the rabbinic writings. Now, I don't know if any of you taking you know, a class in the history of the rabbis, if you ever heard that originally the oral law was not supposed to be written down. It was even a principle that you weren't supposed to write it down. For a long time, there was no Mishnah. I think that was the word I wanted you to write in the blank. Mishnah, and there was no Talmud. Small circles of rabbis and students learned and memorized and repeated. And by the way, the early rabbinic movement was not, they were not the leaders of Judaism. They weren't some big institution. They were little circles of people who were generally well thought of, but were not seen as the leaders of Judaism. They were, they were ahead of their time. And they learned and they memorized and they repeated and they planned for it to be a living tradition. You know, there are a lot of cultures that have living traditions, and they actually resist writing things down because when you write it down, it becomes fossilized. When you write it down, it can be misinterpreted. They wanted it to be passed on from teacher to student, and then that student would become the teacher and pass it on. And, you know, there's always the the harm of inaccuracy when it's written down. But there was something that happened in Jewish history. There were, in fact, two wars with Rome. The first one ended in 70 CE, the second one ended in 135 CE. And at the end of both of these wars with Rome, the Jewish people were devastated. Hundreds of thousands were killed. After the first war, the temple was destroyed and became a garbage dump. After the second one, many rabbis, including Rabbi Akiva, were killed torturously by the Romans. And there was actually the feeling that this small movement of rabbis would die out. There was a danger that all of that knowledge could be lost. And so Judah Hanasi, Judah the prince, wrote down what was known in his day, and we call that the Mishnah. He didn't do that until about the year 200. So you think about it, these rabbinic circles began before the time of Yeshua, and they didn't get written down until a a long time after the New Testament. By the way, if you ever hear Jewish people saying that the New Testament is inaccurate because it's written down so long after say, um, excuse me, you've heard of the Mishnah? It wasn't written down until 200. And it records sayings of Hillel who lived before Yeshua. So uh, sometimes uh, people who are against our belief in Messiah will come up with arguments that are shooting themselves in the foot, and they're just hoping that you don't notice that. But back to my point. Similarly, but for a shorter period of time, the early believers thought that their movement would not need to be uh, on earth for very long. They didn't think there were going to be many generations to come. They thought maybe they're kids, maybe we'll have grandkids, but by then Messiah will come. Messiah was coming back, and they were a living tradition. And interestingly, when the Gospels did get written down, the footprints or the fingerprints of this living tradition are still there, and I'm going to give us just a little taste of that this morning. What do I mean by a living tradition? I mean that eyewitnesses shared in the congregation stories about what they saw and heard. People like Jairus, 
Bartimaeus, Mary Magdalene, Simon the Cyrene, Peter, and the one known as the beloved disciple, who by the way, if we were doing a class on eyewitnesses in the Gospels, I would tell you why I don't think it's John, the brother of James and the, uh, the John who's famous as one of the three fishermen in Galilee. But anyway, the beloved disciple who wrote the Gospel of John and others who were the first generation, they had seen and touched and experienced in person, and they expected Messiah to return before they died, but he did not. Now you think about it. What's going on 50 years after Yeshua went away? The eyewitnesses are all just about dead. Very few are still alive. And in between the time of Yeshua and the New Testament, people were convinced that Yeshua was equal with God. It happened in between. Nobody was writing down the stories of what was happening during that period of time. The book of Acts was written down much later and only goes back and includes some of the stories. You know why you see all the stories about Paul in Acts and you don't see many stories about Peter? Because Luke was very interested in Paul and wasn't that interested in Peter. You almost get the impression that Peter didn't do much. He did a lot of things. We don't know what he did because he didn't have a biographer like Paul did, which is in the book of Acts. There, if you ever think about how little we know, maybe you've heard some of the legends that people have. People in India are convinced that Thomas came to India. You know, did he? I don't know. We don't have a book that tells us about it. I suppose it's possible. We really have a giant question mark about what happened in between the time of Yeshua and the writing of the New Testament. At the time they wrote it down, there was actually no controversy about this topic that I've been speaking to you about. But what was it that happened that persuaded them? We're going to talk about what happened that persuaded them. But first, I want to go back and give you a few examples of eyewitnesses in the Gospels. And this will be fun. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke 24, 18. This is the story of the road to Emmaus. You know the story of the road to Emmaus a little bit? So Yeshua incognito, actually disguising his form. You know, I don't know how deeply you've thought about the story of the road to Emmaus, but apparently Yeshua's body was capable of things after the resurrection that defy the normal laws of physics today, like walking through locked doors and such things. Apparently he could change his appearance. You know, some people interpret the story as he just covered his face really good with his hood so no one could tell who he was. No, he's actually masking his appearance. They can't tell who he is. And how many disciples are there on the road to Emmaus? How many of the names do we know? And what's the name that we know? Okay, isn't that weird that there would be two disciples on the road to Emmaus, but Luke only tells us the name of one? Well, let me tell you a little bit about Cleopas. Somebody, it doesn't have to be all of you, look up John 19.25. John 19.25. Remember, Cleopas, C-L-E-O-P-A-S. Now, what do we read in John 19.25? Okay, so Mary, the wife of, I think it says Clopas, right? C-L-O-P-A-S. Well, um, Richard Balcom, in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, does a study of names, names of people in ancient Israel. They're Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek names. And he says that Cleopas is an extremely rare name. It's like meeting someone named Aloysius. By the way, I recently met a couple who named their child Aloysius. So there, there actually are Aloysiuses around today. And if you heard somebody talking about Aloysius in the same town that you'd met an Aloysius, you'd be pretty sure they're talking about the same person because they're so rare. Cleopas is one of those kind of names. It's very rare. And it can have a variant spelling, Clopas. So... Balcom and other scholars are convinced that this Clopas is the same person as Cleopas, that Luke and John are talking about the same person. Now, we find out more about this Cleopas in Eusebius' history of the church. Cleopas was not just some, you know, stranger to Yeshua. As a matter of fact, he was Yeshua's uncle. So this guy on the road to Emmaus who doesn't recognize Yeshua until he breaks the bread, and then all of a sudden he knows who he is, and Yeshua disappears, and, you know, weren't our hearts strangely warmed, and all that stuff that's in the story? That's his uncle. They're related. But here's the really important thing for our purposes. Luke knows that there are two disciples on the road to Emmaus, but he only names one of them. Why do you think he doesn't name the other one? No, it wasn't Luke. Luke was, uh, was Luke even born then? I don't even think Luke was born then, or he was very young. He definitely wasn't one of the disciples, all right? It's because, and this, this is a pattern that we see, and I'm going to show you another example with Simon of Cyrene. 
The Gospels only name people who were known eyewitnesses to the evangelist who wrote the Gospel. In other words, Luke either once in his life heard Cleopas speak, or he may have heard someone who heard Cleopas. Almost certainly, Luke knew who the other disciple was. He didn't include his name because that's the pattern. They only put in the names of people who they were personally acquainted with their story. And by the way, this was, a, this was something, this was a, a custom in Greco-Roman biography that you put the names of people whose stories you had heard. You either heard it directly from them or somebody said, once I was near Jerusalem and I heard Cleopas tell the story. And, and, and if you got it secondhand from a reliable source, you could use it, but you had to be acquainted with it. Now, you, you might be a little skeptical. So I'm going to give you an example that will demonstrate it across three Gospels, okay? I want you now to look in Mark 15, 21, and I want you to tell me the names of Simon of Cyrene's sons. Simon of Cyrene had two sons. This would be a great Bible trivia question. You might decide to name, you know, your children or grandchildren after. I haven't met, one of these names is fairly common. The other one, I haven't met anyone with this name. Yeah, Alexander and Rufus. So uh, now I want you to look at Matthew 27, 32, and I want you to tell me what Matthew says the name of Simon of Cyrene's sons are. Matthew 27, 32. It's not there, right? Now, uh, if you'll just take my word for it, Mark was written before Matthew, and Matthew used Mark as a source. So when Matthew was writing this section, he had the text of Mark right in front of him. So why didn't he write down the names? It's right there. Why did he leave them out? Now, you may not want to take the time to look it up. Maybe you just want to trust me on this. But if you looked at Luke 23, 26, you'd see the same thing. And Luke had Mark and Matthew in front of him, and he didn't write it down. Why not? It's a part of a larger pattern. And when you put all the pieces of the pattern together, you should really read Richard Balcom's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. It's one of the best books I ever read. When you put the whole pattern together and when you understand the practice of Greco-Roman biography, if they weren't personally acquainted with the story of the eyewitness, they didn't write it down. They didn't put the name. The only names that are included, you think about it. There are a number of times where Yeshua heals, you know, 10 lepers or he heals a blind man and they're not named, right? But then you'll have occasions where they are named, like Bartimaeus. Why do we know the name Bartimaeus? Because people knew his story. They heard his story. These eyewitnesses would travel to the congregations and they would tell about their encounters with Yeshua. And that's, it's in that living tradition that the divine Messiah realization happened. And so now we're going to talk about this divine Messiah realization. All right. If you have ever been through a paradigm-shattering experience, for example, you're Jewish, your family's Jewish, and you decide Jesus is the Messiah. This is a paradigm-shattering experience. This is a you-might-lose-your-friends experience. This is, a, uh, this is a big deal. Now, for me, it was when I decided not to be an engineer or a scientist. My dad was an engineer. I was good at math and science, but I was also good at history and literature, and I really had a tough choice. I decided to go to engineering school. I went to Georgia Tech for two years. And then I found Jesus through C.S. Lewis, and I dropped out of engineering school. And let me tell you, all of my self-esteem was wrapped up in, I'm a Georgia Tech student making mostly A's in science and math classes, and my dad is really proud of me. All of my self-esteem was wrapped up in that. When I dropped out of that and said, I'm not going to be an engineer or a scientist, it was like I lost my reason for living almost. I mean, it was, it was tough. You know, being Jewish and your family's very disappointed in you because you believe in Messiah. This is a tough change. If you've ever been through a paradigm-shattering experience, you can imagine what it must have been like for Peter, Paul, James, and the other early believers. Because what was once anathema to them, anything that would threaten monotheism was anathema to them. What would be so wrong to believe that you would lose friends and be an outcast among your own people, now they started believing something that fit into that category. It must have been very persuasive, whatever it was. And, you know, what happened to them actually was a mysterious experience. God did not give them a theology course. God did not draw diagrams of the persons of the Trinity and how they fit together. 
what happened to them was like the mystery of the ineffable shining down from heaven with beams of light, and you just experience it and have no explanation for it. In ways that they would struggle to put into words, they caught sight of a new glory in Messiah, one they had never dared to contemplate before. They had seen Yeshua transfigured on the mountain and didn't understand it. Now they're seeing him appearing from heaven with radiant glory shining from his face. God had exalted Yeshua and placed him at the right hand, and it was evident that he had actually been there all along. It wasn't that God suddenly exalted Yeshua who had not been exalted before. It was that they just didn't know before that he was exalted. It was like the prince and the pauper who trades place with the poor man and goes out among the public and you know, wants to make real friends who don't know he's the prince. And then one day you find out he's the prince and it changes everything. Yeshua had a divine glory of his own, his own place in heaven, revealed to the disciples on earth in visions. And in these visions, angelic beings are prostrate before God and Messiah, and God isn't upset about it. He isn't, uh, he isn't angry about it. It isn't idolatry, which is what we're always accused of. Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Standing at the right hand of God. Not bowing or sitting. Now, the Son of Man in that saying of Stephen, of course, is a reference to Daniel 7, which we've talked about a little bit in the series, where there are two thrones in heaven, and one like a Son of Man is given a kingdom forever by the Ancient of Days. Stephen sees the Son of Man and doesn't even name him. But you know how it goes in the story in Acts chapter 7. All the people who are gathered around know who Stephen is talking about. They know he's talking about Yeshua. They don't even have to ask, Who is this Son of Man? They know that he means Yeshua. Why? Because Yeshua had said similar things, especially at his trial. He said, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, seated at the right hand of power. And now Stephen sees that. Those accusing Stephen recognized the meaning of the vision and stoned him for blasphemy, for equating Messiah with God, which they believed was two gods, faith in two gods. From heaven, people saw that Yeshua had his own glory, From heaven, people saw Yeshua standing beside God. Now, in addition to the examples that we have of Paul's vision, which we talked about already on the road to Damascus, and Stephen's vision that's recorded in Acts, there are other visions too. They're not perhaps as helpful because they come from the end of the first century in the book of Revelation. Historians don't give them as much credence because they're so late. But think about the visions of Yeshua that John saw from the island of Patmos in the book of Revelation. In those visions, Yeshua speaks from heaven, and he is the giver. Oh, I know what happened. I thought I'd skipped ahead in my presentation. It's because this is printed on the front and back. I was skipping the whole back page. I'm going to go back a little bit. Let's go back to the eyewitnesses thing. I thought I'd jumped ahead. Okay, back to the eyewitnesses. I forgot to tell you a really important piece of information about Papias. Papias was one of the earliest church fathers. He was a second century bishop, and he exemplifies this concern that the early believers had for a living tradition, for knowing what the eyewitnesses said. And Papias wrote a book that we all wish we had a copy of. I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but Yeshua said things that are not recorded in the Gospels. Now, there is an example of one thing that Yeshua said that's not in the Gospels that we know from Paul. Paul has one saying of Yeshua that isn't in the Gospels. Anybody know what it is? It is more blessed to give than to receive. You won't find that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but Paul quotes it. So Paul knew things that Yeshua said that we don't know from the Gospels. Surely he knew other things too. Papias has one. I didn't write it in my notes, but it's something like this. Yeshua said, in the kingdom, uh, every Every vine will have 10,000 branches, every branch will have 10,000 clusters, every cluster will have 10,000 grapes, and every grape will yield, you know, 10,000 flagons of wine. Start multiplying the 10,000s times the 10, it's a lot. That's an actual, probably real saying of Yeshua that's not recorded in the Gospels. Now, we don't know of it actually from Papias's book, because Papias's book got lost. But Papias had a collection of all of the sayings of Yeshua that he could find. Unfortunately, Papias' book is lost and we don't have it. But Eusebius happened to quote that one saying. And so we know of it because of Eusebius. Eusebius had Papias' book. Unfortunately, people didn't preserve it. 
But here's something about Papias. When Papias was a young man, he realized that the eyewitnesses were dying out. And he set about to collect all of the sayings of Yeshua. Uh, he, he was, this was around the same time the Gospels were being formed. He was probably aware of at least Mark by that time. But he wasn't satisfied with it. He wanted to make his own collection. And he made it a life project. But by the time Papias was older, the eyewitnesses were dead. So he had to go on the research that he did as a young man. And this is what Papias said. He said, unlike most people, I did not enjoy those who had a great deal to say, but those who teach the truth. In other words, he felt that there were teachers who you know, were more about exalting themselves than just passing on the tradition that had come down from Yeshua. He wanted to go and hear messages that were about what Yeshua actually did and said. Nor did I enjoy those who recalled someone else's commandments, but those who remembered the commandments given by the Lord to the faith and proceeding from the truth itself. He called Yeshua the truth itself. It's like, think of that as a title. I mean, Yeshua said, I am the way, the life, and the truth. And if by chance anyone who had been attendants on the elders should come my way. Now, Papias lived up in Asia Minor. I forget now which town it was. Maybe one of you will remember Lycia or somewhere like that. And he didn't travel very far. But there were these highways in Rome that people traveled through. And he took the occasion as a young man when anyone was traveling through his way. If he heard that they had heard from someone who had heard from an eyewitness, he wanted to talk to them. Listen how he says it. If by chance anyone who had been attendants on the elders should come my way, I inquired about the words of the elders. Who does he mean by the elders? He explains it. What Peter or Andrew said, or Philip or Thomas or John or Matthew or any other of the Lord's disciples, and whatever Aristion... Who on earth is Aristion? We, we hear a little bit more about Aristion in a few other places. He apparently is one of the eyewitnesses who lived a long time. He was still alive later. And the elder John. The elder John is probably, in my opinion, the beloved disciple. And he's someone who also lived a longer time. The Lord's disciples were saying. The early movement wanted to know what eyewitnesses had to say. And those examples that I gave you about uh, Simon of Cyrene, Cleopas, who was Yeshua's uncle, Alexander and Rufus, who Mark had heard their story, but Matthew and Luke had never heard their story. That's an example of how that was preserved. Only the eyewitnesses are named in the Gospels. All right, from there, I was supposed to move into my explanation about how the people who saw the divine Messiah realization, now we're not talking just about people who saw Yeshua while he was alive, now we're talking about people who saw him appear from heaven. Their stories didn't exactly get written down. We, when we read the New Testament, we don't have a lot of stories about Yeshua appearing from heaven. I've mentioned most of the ones we know about. I've mentioned that there was Paul on the road to Damascus, that there was Stephen when he was being stoned. I didn't mention, but let me just briefly mention it to you. Paul talks about having had many revelations of Yeshua from heaven that he can't write about. So Paul apparently had more experiences after the road to Damascus and he was shown things that he couldn't describe. It's interesting to ask the question, why would God show these things to Paul? Why would Yeshua show these things to Paul? Uh, I guess it was for Paul's own personal benefit, not for our benefit, that Paul was shown these things. Um, we also have some partial fingerprints in the New Testament. You know, if you're a detective or a CSI, or if you just watch CSI shows, which makes me an expert because I watch those shows, you know how much they can do with partial evidence. And a lot of things we have to figure out in life are partial evidence. We have partial evidence of these visions and that these visions were the way people knew about Yeshua's divinity in the New Testament. Probably the best evidence occurs in some of the expressions that Paul uses in his letters to describe Yeshua's exalted identity. Paul himself had his worldview radically updated by that vision on the road to Damascus, right? And in that vision, what did he see? He saw a bright light, so bright that it blinded him. That's the divine glory. And in that vision, he heard a divine voice, Yeshua's voice, not the Father's voice, Yeshua's voice, speaking from heaven. And who speaks from heaven? But in most cases, I only know of one contradiction to this in the Bible, God. Uh, I forget, I think the one might be the angel of the Lord speaking to the shepherds or something like that. Usually, speaking from heaven, it's always God. The divine glory that he saw was Yeshua's divine glory, and the heavenly voice was Yeshua's voice, but they were things that could only come from God. 
Further, Paul said that the basis of his leadership in the Yeshua movement was, quote, a revelation of Messiah Yeshua, Galatians 1.12. What do you think he meant by a revelation? He probably means a vision. Could mean just a prophetic word that he heard or dreamed about, but he probably means a prophetic vision, a revelation of Messiah Yeshua, Galatians 1.12, by which he was given his leadership in the Yeshua movement. In Philippians 3.21, Paul refers to Yeshua's body as glorious, meaning radiant with divine light. How would Paul know this? I suppose it could be from the transfiguration story if you were just coming up with theories, but it also could be because he saw visions of Yeshua with a body radiant with light. In 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, Paul speaks of God shining the truth in our hearts. Now, immediately, we don't take that very literally. You know, like when Rabbi Silverman gives a drosh, he shines the truth in your hearts. But imagine if he actually lit up and you had to shield your face because he was so radiant. He literally shone the truth in your heart. This would be an amazing transfiguration. Uh, But maybe the reason Paul used that expression is because there was something literal behind it. He says that God shines the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Messiah Yeshua. Now, I'll grant you, these are just hints, right? So maybe, maybe this is not complete evidence. But we have to go on partial evidence. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 that the light of Messiah's glory has not faded. It hasn't faded. Because in Paul's day, all the believers believe in the light of Yeshua's radiance. It hasn't faded at all. And then Paul made a midrash about it. If I had more time, I would go into a lengthy explanation of 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. It's one of those confusing passages that sounds like Christianity replaces Judaism, and people, when they read 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, they always struggle with that. It's actually extremely clever if you get into what Paul is doing there in that chapter. He makes a midrash, and he... You remember I said that in a midrash, you come up with a creative explanation. In fact, the most delightful explanations are ones that actually reverse the meaning of the text. I know that sounds crazy, but if you can totally turn the text backwards and make a point out of it and it's a valid point, you're like an, you're a midrash artist. So why do you think in the story of Moses when he would come down off the mountain and his face was shining and he put a veil over it, why do you think Moses would put a veil over his face? I mean, just the normal reading of the story. What, why didn't Moses just let his face shine? Right. But here's what Paul says in a clever midrash. He says, no, it's because Moses was embarrassed that the light would fade that he didn't carry the light permanently. Either he was embarrassed that he wasn't a powerful enough vessel to have the light all the time and that it would fade, or that he was embarrassed that God's glory didn't last. He didn't want people to see you know, God be shamed because his glory faded. Now, Paul doesn't think that's what the story of Moses is actually about. He's making a clever midrash, and everybody who reads him knows it, but you've got to admit that's pretty, pretty clever because he's comparing that to the apostles' testimony that Yeshua had a glory of his own, a glory which does not fade. So apparently, in Paul's understanding, what they knew about Messiah had an awful lot to do with radiant light and glory. He keeps saying stuff about it. In fact, Paul even relates the experience of ordinary believers who never saw Yeshua appear from heaven. Okay, In his letters, he's writing to people who never saw these things. And this is what he says. He says, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He is actually saying that in Yeshua we become divinized. That in Yeshua we become partakers of the divine nature. That as the apostles passed down to us the light of God's glory coming from Yeshua, that so we too, as we believe it, and as, we, as our lives are changed by this faith that we have in what God did and what God showed us, that we too are going to increasingly become glorious and become more like God than we are now. Oh, that's 2 Corinthians 3.18. Yeah. Uh, in my Divine Messiah book, I explain the passage in depth so that you won't think it's about Christianity replacing Judaism. I know you are all worried that that might be true, that Christianity replaced Judaism. The light of God in the face of Messiah Yeshua... The glory of the Lord, which is Yeshua's own glory. Revelation of Messiah Yeshua from heaven. And then we come to these uh, visions of Yeshua in the book of Revelation, which as I say are late. Historians don't give them an awful lot of credence. But think about it. 
in the book of Revelation, Yeshua speaks from heaven as the giver of prophecy. Who gives prophecy but God? In the book of Revelation, Yeshua has the white hair of the Ancient of Days from Daniel chapter 7. You compare the description of Yeshua to Daniel chapter 7, he's being described like the Ancient of Days. Yeshua calls himself the first and the last. Now we know that in Isaiah, the first and the last is God. That's a pretty, that's a pretty big one. You know, If the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, just pull that one out. I am the first and the last. I'm sure they have an explanation for it. And most importantly, in Revelation 5, Revelation 5, if you just want to read one chapter about the divinity of Messiah, there's another good one. Revelation 5. What is happening in Revelation 5? All of the angelic beings are worshiping Yeshua. Worshiping Yeshua. He's not, he's not the chief angelic being. He is deity. And angels worship him. In the presence of God. God's right there and he's not angry at the angels for doing it. It's okay. Because Yeshua is God alongside God. Yeshua was not what they expected in their grandest dreams. He wasn't a human Messiah. He wasn't a martyr. He wasn't just a righteous man. He wasn't even the most righteous man. He was more than that. Although people later tried to reduce him to all of these things, Yeshua wasn't even the chiefest of all the chief angels. The reason we can say that no other person or angelic being, the reason we can say that is that no chief angel or other exalted being was ever treated like God except Yeshua. The early believers, only they saw him appearing from heaven after he ascended, and that is what persuaded them. But here's the next question, and this is the one that I want our conference to go out on. How did this divinity make a difference in their lives? Is it just a theological point? Is it just something to satisfy our theological curiosity? Or does this grand vision of who Yeshua is actually change the way we think about certain things? I hope that it will change the way you think about Beth Messiah congregation. Or if you're not from Beth Messiah, if you're visiting from somewhere, your congregation. I hope that it will change the way you think about the presence of Yeshua in the world. I hope that we'll quit thinking of Yeshua as a guy who just has pierced hands and pierced feet and sits on a stool next to God in heaven where he's of no use to anyone. I hope you'll realize that he's present. Here's a, just in a summary statement. The way Yeshua's divinity made a difference in their lives is they desired to live their lives to please Him and to be found in Him on the last day. It's kind of like this. If God is the, the chief uh, king of everything, but to us He seems very far away, Yeshua brought God near and we can relate to Him. We can comprehend Him with our human mind so much better. And we can we can more easily imagine Him caring about us. We can more easily imagine pleasing Him than we can this hard-to-conceive-of depiction of God far out there. Yeshua brings God near to us in a way that we can comprehend. We can't understand the Ein Sof, but God sent an emanation to us, Yeshua, that we can perceive, that we can grasp, that we can take hold of. Jewish literature before Yeshua's time and also after Yeshua's time, came part of the way toward this thing we believe, this divine Messiah realization. The thing which Jews believe so strongly in these writings is that God was drawing close to Israel, that God's presence was with Israel, living with them in a mysterious presence, the Shekinah, the Shekinah, as a lot of people pronounce it, and also sending out his agents to be involved in what happened to Israel. But here's the thing, how far would God take this nearness they never crossed the threshold and said, he took it so far he became one of us. But that's what the apostles realized. They said, God kept getting closer and closer and closer and closer, and guess what? Now he became one of us. That's how close he got. That's the difference. A famous Midrash says, Come and see how beloved the Israelites are before God. For whenever they went into exile, the Shekinah followed them. There's a longing in the Jewish heart to have the presence of God close at hand. I love that one I mentioned, uh, I think it was yesterday morning, that there are midrashes that say, you might be able to catch a glimpse of God between the fingers of the person reciting the Aaronic benediction. I hope you'll start looking more closely to see if you just see a little bit of the glory shining through the fingers. We should have that kind of anticipation. I want to see God in the world. Here is what we see in the reality of Yeshua. God took His love as far as becoming one of us. That's a new revelation of God's love. There are all kinds of beautiful statements of God's love in the Hebrew Bible. 
I have loved you with an everlasting love, God says to Israel. Uh, oh, how can I abandon you, O Israel? You know, you're my heart. How can I give you up? Uh, you know, God's love for Israel is tender. It's beautiful. But the idea that he would abandon his glory to become one of us, to suffer and experience what we experience, that takes his love to a new level. He took his love as far as becoming one of us and being found in the likeness of a man humbling himself even to the point of death. And in Yeshua, the other aspect of what difference it makes in our lives is this. In Yeshua, we saw God in a new way because whoever saw Messiah saw God. It gives us a a nearer understanding of God. Like that song, what if God were one of us? We've seen what that looks like. And it's beautiful. So these two truths are the basis of living a new way. And understanding these two truths makes a world of difference to us. Now our Jewish community doesn't know this. Our Jewish community doesn't know that God took His love that far. As far as becoming one of us. There's so much love of God though among our people. And personally, I realize there might be different opinions about this. Personally, I believe the love of God that exists in Judaism is real. I don't discount it. And shockingly, maybe, I don't know if this is controversial, I think our people have a real relationship with God, even apart from Yeshua. But there is a more which our people are lacking. And that more is a sense of our own worth in God's eyes. It's a liberating freeness when you see that you're worth so much God would become like you. It's a preview of the kingdom, of the world to come. If you want to know whether God will accept you on that day, He wants to accept you so badly He became like you and entered into an experience very much like yours. Experience the weaknesses that you experience. That's how much He loves you. He didn't stand up at the top looking down in the pit that we're in and say, looks lonely down there. Would you like a sandwich? He climbed down in the pit where we were and stood beside us and said, yeah, it sucks to be down here. You really need to be lifted up out of here. We've got to find a solution for you. He's the guy that walked down there with us and experienced it with us. That's God. And he did it, you know, for you and for me. And when you know that kind of acceptance, when you know you have that kind of worthiness to God, it doesn't matter what other people think. Because that's the opinion that really matters. It's a liberating truth. Because God became one of us, so many liberating things are true. God is personally acquainted with our suffering and weakness. He, you know, some people raise an objection. They say, but Messiah didn't go through all the things. I mean, he wasn't, you know, in a concentration camp for years. He didn't have cancer. But you know, you don't have to experience every specific type of suffering to understand suffering. He experienced something we can never fathom leaving the greatest, most privileged position of all to become hated, despised, and even physically tortured when he didn't have to. It's an experience of suffering great enough that we can say whatever we suffer, God understands it because he had something that in some way parallels it. Theologians call what Messiah did recapitulation. It's a fancy word. If you tell me your story and I recapitulate your story to someone else, it means I retell your story. But what the theologians mean is not just that God retells our story, but that he, in a sense, lived it so he could experience it and retell it. He entered into our story and lived it so that he could understand it himself, so that divinity could understand being finite. Scott McKnight says, Jesus recapitulated Adam's life, Israel's life, and the life of every one of us. And I adapted Scott McKnight's definition of atonement This is similar to his definition, but I changed it a little bit. Yeshua's atonement is total identification with us all the way down to death for the purpose of incorporating us into his victory, into his destiny, into his people, and into his redeemed cosmos to come. And you know, only a divine Messiah can accomplish recapitulation. A human Messiah could never do this. God himself invaded humanity. Scott McKnight quotes Irenaeus, who used to say, and this is a saying so good it's worth memorizing, he became what we are so we could become what he is. God has shown us freedom. He has shown us this freedom so that we can become like him. And what does it mean to become like him? It means imitation. God always said to Israel, be holy for I am holy. Now, we have a much closer example of what that looks like. And the imitation of the divine Messiah became the ultimate meaning of our salvation. 
He identified us to incorporate us into what he is, so why would you want to remain what you were? He has a victory over the brokenness of the world, so why would you still want to be broken? He has a destiny of eternal love, so why would you still believe that you are unworthy or not loved? Now these things are our destiny too. Our destiny is more and more in this life. I'm not talking about in the next life. I'm talking about right now to imitate him. Are you going to wait till you die to imitate Messiah? That's not what he came here for. He came here to make us like him. And our destiny is to cease living as though we are broken and to live as those who are being healed. You might say, but I'm not healed all the way. Well, what are you doing about it? I said that we are to cease living as though we are broken and live as though we are those who are being healed. And you might say, but I'm not healed all the way. Well, what are you doing about it? Are you staying in the same place? You don't have to still be broken. You can crawl out of it. Our destiny is to find a new love in our hearts that redeems people around us. Messiah was redeeming people all around him. Wherever he went, people were changed. He saw things that were broken and he fixed them. He saw people who were unloved and he loved them. He told us to visit prisoners. Prisoners. He didn't say likable people. He said prisoners. He said he taught us that we are worthy, worthy of God's life. But lest we get a big head, so are all the people around us. They're worthy too. And if they're worthy of God's life, they're worthy of our honor. They're worthy of our civility. They're worthy of our helping hand. They're worthy of our understanding. They're worthy of our not giving up on them. As it has been given to us, so may we give it to others. And that's what it means when we say that God took his love as far as becoming one of us. And the second part of it is, whoever saw Messiah saw God. Look at Yeshua's life and realize that in whatever capacity you can, it's a model for your life, something for you to follow. Abraham Joshua Heschel in his book, uh, all of a sudden the title of his book, uh, God in Search of Man, okay. And God in Search of Man says that there are three ways that we enter into God's presence. If we as Messianic Jews want to enter into God's presence, it's easy to psychologically get out of God's presence. It's easy to psychologically get into a place where we barely remember God, where we can hardly think about God. Yeshua may have brought God near to us, but it's still possible for God to be hidden in this world and for us to forget that he's here. The Bible gives us three ways, and Abraham Joshua Heschel says they are nature, scripture, and deeds of love. Interestingly, when Yeshua taught us about God, he used all three of these and urged his disciples to be a part of all three of these practices. For example, he taught his disciples and used illustrations from nature. You ever read the illustrations that Yeshua used from nature? They're beautiful. He says, look at the birds of the air. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father's will. Yeshua could just see God in the world everywhere he went. In the grass. He said, it's finer than Solomon's clothing. And, and God made it just for you to walk on. He saw illustrations of God's glory everywhere. Beholding the lessons of nature is a way of knowing God and Messiah. Yeshua taught his disciples to be hearers and doers of the word of God. He said profound things about our relationship to the word of God. He said, everything written about me in the Torah of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be filled up. He said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a sage. He said, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. Yeshua taught his disciples to be people of the book. And if we stop at just seeing God's glory in nature, and if we stop at just learning God's lessons from Scripture, then we're not doing everything Messiah teaches because he taught us about deeds of love. He said, whenever you do it for the least of these, you do it for me. And he's talking about acts of comfort and help shown toward the least important human beings. He said feeding or visiting someone is like showing love directly to Yeshua. He said that when we... When we do these acts, it's as if the person in need is Messiah in disguise. He said deeds of loving kindness are a way to meet him. He said those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And by fruit, he meant deeds of love, like he did. When we saw Messiah and heard his words, we saw God as one of us. And Yeshua was a teacher who helps us work through the maze of ideas about the holy life, Jewish life, Christian life, religious life. Yeshua's ethical interpretation of the holy life and his grand vision of making the kingdom of heaven a reality now is practical and needed. 
You know, not all forms of religion are effective in producing any actual results. In fact, religion is kind of known for not producing results. I mean, we can look at the positive side of the history of religion, and we can see hospitals and lepers that were treated, and we could see some pretty cool things, societies for charity and benefits for the poor, and we can look at the positive side, but the positive side just gets so outweighed by the negative that we see fighting over everything, and money, and power, and domination, and religion as a tool to start wars. Not all forms of religion are effective in producing anything that the world needs. Many practice Jewish, Christian, or other religion poorly, offering the world little in the way of belonging to God, of bringing God to earth. And that leads me to a third and final truth about our divine Messiah. Not only can we say that God took his love as far as becoming one of us and that whoever saw Messiah saw God, but we can also say this, Messiah who is absent is also present, particularly in the congregation of his name. I'm always trying to teach this to my congregation, and I have one particular woman who really resists this truth that I'm going to share with you because she came from a tradition where everything was so individualistic, where uh, people are always saying, Jesus would have died on the cross if you were the only one who would be saved. And the Holy Spirit comes to you personally, even when you're singing in the car as you're driving and does great things. But when I tell her that most of the promises have to do with the presence of Yeshua in the congregation, not so much individually, this troubles her. God is omnipresent and Yeshua is God alongside God. Therefore, Yeshua is omnipresent. Yeshua is present with us and the way He teaches it, His presence is manifested more powerfully when we are not alone, but when we are gathered. Marana. Ta is what the early believers, Greek early believers even, would say. They would speak Aramaic as they learned it from the Jewish believers in the land of Israel. Maranatha, our Lord, come. They invited him to their Lord's table after their meal, their full meal, their own egg that they had, not, not just a thimble full of juice and a little cracker. And it was an invocation. They were saying, be among us, Lord. And in his earthly life, Yeshua gathered people. Think about it. In the Gospel of Luke, there are eight scenes where Yeshua is sitting at a table teaching people while they're drinking wine, eating bread, and other foods. Yeshua gathered people around a table and he taught. There's no better, I wish we all had food right now. Well, we had it before. You already, hopefully you had some food before you came in. There's no better time for people to be open than when they're enjoying company together, enjoying food. Yeshua was all about gatherings. And he spoke during these gatherings about enduring issues. And he demanded the transformation of the people who sat at the table with him. After his ascension, the early believers, what did they do? They met in a variety of gatherings. They met in the temple square. It wasn't just, you know, some certain time of the week. They met daily. And these great things that happened, happened in their gatherings. Their togetherness was open. It was a, it was a togetherness that everyone participated in. It wasn't hierarchical. It was about God and Messiah more so than the gathering itself. They didn't have to always talk about how great the gathering was. They talked about God and Messiah. In his letters, Paul talks about these gatherings and the way people should act in these gatherings. He says everyone should be outdoing one another in honor. I heard rabbis say, why do we have a forward and faith banquet? Some people question it and say we shouldn't be honoring people. We should only honor God. And he, he couldn't think of the scripture. He said it's somewhere in the first four chapters of Philippians. There's the command that Paul gave to his people. He said to outdo one another in honor. That always makes me think of those chipmunks from the Warner Brothers cartoons. You know, oh no, you first. Oh, I insist, you first. I, you know, it's, it'd be comical, but we should be more like that. Greeting one another, showing hospitality to one another. It's a Jewish mitzvah to show hospitality. Invite someone to your house. If you don't like them, don't tell them you don't like them. Just invite them to your house. Maybe you'll like them after you have a meal with them. Belonging to one another. Do we have a sense that we belong to one another? I think that really gets lost in our culture where you can just change religious attendances. You know, if, if you don't like someplace, just go somewhere else. Belonging to one another. Having mutual concern for one another. Receiving one another. Being in unity with one another. Through love, serving one another bearing with one another, forgiving one another, speaking to one another in songs, submitting to one another, treating one another as more important, and exhorting and instructing one another. 
I mean, the example of Messiah in his earthly life was to have these gatherings. The example of the early believers was to have these gatherings. And Yeshua said to his disciples, though I go away, I will send you a comforter. And I am with you always to the end of the age. But you know that you there is the plural you. I really, really believe this is an important point. That we should get away from thinking about my personal Yeshua and think about the presence of Yeshua when I gather with the believers. You want to be with the believers because you're going to experience God in a more powerful way than you will on your own. The early believers were convinced that Yeshua is alive in the community of his followers. They said anyone who does not have the Spirit of Messiah does not belong to him. The Spirit of God and Messiah's Spirit and the Comforter are all equated in the New Testament. Yeshua's Spirit is the Holy Spirit, is the Father's Spirit. Don't ask me to explain it, I don't understand it either. These kind of things that the early believers taught and lived, these are not the aspirations of a people who believe in a dead Messiah. These are the aspirations of a people who believe in a living Messiah. Now, most people who have believed in Yeshua haven't seen these visions of his heavenly glory. Maybe some of you have. I've, I've heard people who said they had visions of Yeshua. I haven't. And oftentimes when people have told me their stories about seeing visions of Yeshua, their vision sounded like something from, you know, I don't know, a Cecil B. DeMille movie or something. And I think that's because God reveals himself to us in ways we understand. But I want to say to you that the apostles got visions that they didn't understand. God showed them something so mysterious, so ineffable, they struggled to describe it. Most of us haven't had a vision like that. What came down to us is the record of people who say they saw it. This revealing of Yeshua's divinity came to us from those who saw evidence of it. And you say, no wonder our Jewish people can't believe this. It's just the testimony of someone who claims they saw it and we don't get a chance to see it. But you know what? Judaism is based on the same thing. Supposedly, God appeared on Mount Sinai. We don't even know where Mount Sinai is. No one knows. There's no Jew alive today who saw God on Mount Sinai. There's nothing ridiculous about our belief in the divine Messiah. Judaism is based on the testimony of people who say they saw God appear on Mount Sinai. Our belief in Yeshua is based on the testimony of people who say they saw Yeshua from heaven. There is no reason for us to be ashamed or embarrassed about our belief. In fact, because it's nearer to us in history, there's way more evidence that people really saw Yeshua rise from the dead and appear from heaven than there is that anyone saw God on Mount Sinai. Jews for Judaism won't tell you that in all of their videos saying why Jews don't believe in Jesus. The Bible is a record of people from the past who say that they heard from God. And we heard from God through what they heard from God. That's how it passes down. And that's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all, he's talking to people in Corinth and Greece who never saw it, but he could still include them in it. We all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We believe what they pass down. And we're transformed by that word. And you know, in addition to believing with our minds something communicated in writing, we have other ways of knowing. We have ways of knowing inside. It's by the Spirit that we truly know. It's by the Spirit that we can say, Yeshua is Lord. And maybe you've had this experience. I've had it. I told you that I went through a period of my life where I questioned my faith, where my paradigms were so changed, I wondered if I would have any faith left. I actually used to say to myself in those days, and I had to go through this experience a lot of times before it started resolving itself, but I'd actually say to myself, okay, I'm going to try not to believe. I'm going to live the rest of today as if God doesn't exist and Yeshua is not real. And I couldn't do it. And it's not because I'm incapable of imagining what it's like to be an atheist, because I grew up as an atheist. I was an atheist until I was 19. But I couldn't turn the switch off. Even when intellectually I couldn't process it, I couldn't turn the switch off because I knew in here that it was true. Some of the most important things we know, we don't know intellectually. Love is not intellectual. Love is a matter of the heart. It's something we feel, something we sense in our kishkas. And you know, if, you, if you're resonating with what I'm saying now, then you know, you've, the light's been turned on inside of you by God. If you're not resonating with what I'm saying now, I'll take you back to what Heschel said. Nature, Scripture, and deeds of love. If you, the light hasn't been turned on inside of you, go out into nature and see God. Read Scripture and see God. Go and do deeds of love and see God in the face of the people that you love and help. And maybe God will turn that light on inside of you. We can't say Yeshua is Lord unless God turns the light on inside of us. 
And that's ultimately how we know the divine Messiah realization is true. Let's pray. Father, with our minds, we look at the history. With our emotions, we feel the beauty of what you have done for us. And inside our spirits, we know that it's true. Yeshua is Lord. yod heh vav God alongside God. The one who shares God's transcendent uniqueness. Who is worshipped by angelic beings and stands at the right hand of God. And who is present with us in the congregation of believers. Mystically. And we say, our Lord, come and dwell in our hearts by faith that we might become like you. You became what we are so that we might become what you are. Let us move ahead. Let us desire to gain you and to be found in you on the last day and to please you in every way in our lives. Because you came near and stood beside us and lifted us up. We pray it in Yeshua's name. Amen. Questions? Objections? Okay. She's asking the question. I, I made the statement that any statement that begins with God cannot is a non-starter. And she's, she's thinking of possible objections to that. And so she says, but God can't contradict himself. All right. So this is what we call a figure of speech. God is able to contradict himself, but he won't. Right? It's not actually that he's unable to do it. I'm hoping you don't think of an even harder question you could ask. It looks like you're not going to think of it. Good, so I won't have to answer that one. Okay, good. I've been challenged on that one a few times. Exactly. Okay, so his question is, he says, I talked about us becoming partakers of the divine nature, that God became what we are, so we become what he is, and that evangelical Christians tend not to emphasize this, but it's more emphasized in Greek Orthodox and Catholic faith. And I want to say a few things about it. First of all, the phrase, becoming partakers of divine nature, is in Second Peter. It might be First Peter. Somewhere in the, one of the two books of Peter, <clears throat> it says we become partakers of the divine nature. Second of all, uh, it's important to understand that God has two kinds of attributes. He has communicable attributes and non-communicable attributes. The communicable attributes of God are things like his love, his goodness, his mercy, uh, his justice and righteousness. These things we can take on ourselves. We can grow into these things and become more like our daddy. But God also has non-communicable attributes like his transcendent uniqueness, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his omniscience. When I say we become partakers of the divine nature, I'm not saying we're going to become omnipotent or omniscient or omnipresent. But I am saying that we can have his character, his nature, and even his immortality. We could never have his eternity because eternity means from past but we could have his immortality, which means going forward into the future because he gives it to us. So becoming partakers of the divine nature, what it really means is not after you die, it means while you're still alive. And it means that uh, the more we become like what God is, the more we have, like you could say, a mystical power in life to love and to be a redeeming influence in the world. People who are more like God make a greater impact in the world. Yes, sir. So he brought up the way that Mormons and Latter-day Saints have a particular doctrine of divinization in which you rise up levels of celestialness. And see, that would be becoming semi-divine anyway. They're not actually understanding the definition of deity. Deity really means the one and only one who caused all things to be, was before all things, will be after all things, and in whom all things hold together, and there's only one. But they don't understand that. They're calling divine what I would call semi-divine. It could Although I want everyone to know that Jewish teachers don't feel pressure to always balance everything they say. It's perfectly acceptable to just say it in a shocking way and let everyone wonder about all those things. Okay, so the way, uh, so you're saying that when you've been married to someone for a long time, okay, so if I hear you right, you're focusing on a future thing that will happen to us when all of a sudden we become much more like God all at once. Okay, doesn't have to be in time. Good, because I'd like to see a lot of it right in this life. Second Peter 1.4, good. I had the book right the first time. I shouldn't have second-guessed myself. So we become partakers in the divine nature. Right. So in the Torah, he, he says, um, I quoted a Midrash that says, the Shekhinah went with Israel into the dispersion. But in the Torah, he says the, it says the Shekhinah led them in the wilderness. But actually what led them in the wilderness was the kavod, the glory. And the Shekhinah is not the same thing as the kavod. For example, some rabbis say that the Shekhinah is in the western wall right now. 
And it, the Shekinah is like a less potent manifestation of God than the Kavod. So the Shekinah could be around us and we don't have to put up incense or have sacrifices on an altar or protect ourselves in some way. We're not going to be killed. But if we entered into the direct presence of the Kavod that was inside the Holy of Holies, we would die. So the Shekinah is a much lower uh, manifestation of God, a more hidden, a more veiled manifestation of God. Oh, I'm not saying it does. So I don't know if you were here for all of my presentations. What I said was that the Hebrew Bible and Jewish views of God brought us to the threshold of God becoming a man, but never crossed the line. Judaism never taught that God, and the Hebrew Bible never predicted that Messiah would be divine. But they came to the edge of it without crossing over. Yes, sir. He's asking about Jacob wrestling with the man at the Jabbok River and uh, whether that was Yeshua that he was wrestling with. And, you know, you pick a tough one because you know how I said in Judaism things can be both and? In Hosea, it calls him God and an angel. So everyone wants to know, was that God or an angel? And Hosea says both in the same verse. So I don't know what to do with that. Uh, there have been so many interpretations. I, Rabbi Silverman, what do you think? Who do you think Jacob was wrestling with? An ephemeral manifestation of God. That's what Rabbi Silverman thinks. I think some people have said, I think it was a Robert Alter said, it could be like that scene in The Empire Strikes Back where Luke goes into the cave and he fights Darth Vader and Darth Vader takes off the mask and it's him. And he's fighting against his own stubbornness. That's another interpretation. I don't know. Now Jacob was convinced that he saw the face of God. That, of that we can be sure. It's a mystery. Yes, ma'am. Ah, okay, so she wanted to know how I became a believer in Messiah. So I grew up in a non, completely non-religious home, and I read uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity when I was a college student. Up till that time, I was an agnostic or an atheist. And um, I had already read most of the Hebrew Bible just because I didn't know. Later, Christians told me I should have started with Matthew, but I didn't know that. I started with Genesis 1-1 because that's where the Bible started. And um, then somebody loaned me a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and I read it almost the entire book one night, and said, oh my gosh, this is true. And then I started going to a church uh, where I found out that Jesus was Jewish, and then I said, how did a Jew start Christianity? And that's what got me on the path that I'm on now. All right, thank you, and I'll be around for a little while if you have more questions. Okay, great, thank you, Gary.